Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Gabriela Santos with us to get us started uh, here this morning. We've got a lot of different voices for you. First of all, you know, I know what Bloomberg's doing with our entire Asia contingent. I know J.P. Morgan, the same thing. What are you doing in terms of investment to adapt to an Asia in crisis? So coming into the year, uh, we were having a pretty optimistic view around global growth, stability, feeling a little bit more optimistic about especially a region like emerging markets. With that said, we were also coming into the year with protection. Right. We weren't fully all in on risk assets. So I think that's exactly for moments like these. Right, we weren't exactly expecting this particular risk. There were a whole other list of risks. So thinking of things like treasuries, gold, safe haven currencies, real assets, that's what they were there for. There's a question here, JP Morgan coming out and saying, time to start looking at buying the dip, talking to other investors saying, buy the dip. When do you do the same? I think it's a it's a crucial point. Uh, what you were mentioning earlier, we're not doctors. We have no idea how the virus evolves. But what we have seen historically is the market will bottom once the actual number uh, of infections starts to stabilize, right? And then the economy does a V-shaped recovery and the market does more than a V-shaped yeah. recovery as well. So especially for our clients that are very underweight EM Asia, it it could be a yeah. buying opportunity to actually build up a neutral position. Two things. I want to define the dip. We're negative 2.6% on SPX. That's the dip. I mean, it's like... Plunge. Dippy, Plunge protection. Come on protection. in. And the other is the New York Times uh, quote, John, today, uh, that the cases of the virus on a percentage basis have increased 60%, 6 zero overnight. I want to make clear that the, the unit count is not as big as the percent change to pros. You mentioned a move in the equity market. I'd say have a look at credit. We've had some real credit spread widening, 70 basis points in around about two yeah, weeks. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned I explain it. I that's, don't understand That's not that. insignificant. You know exactly what that means. That means the, the price of credit has gone down. <laughs> Spreads over treasuries have got wider. That's a Just, real move as we approach wider. Real yield, Friday. Look, I'm ill day two. Back off. Otherwise, I'm going to get in a real mood, all right? Seriously, stop. Yeah. Okay. Carry on. Well, we have the spread markets coming, though. Seriously. Spread I've got to interject again because people listening will think I was really serious just then. I'm not. We're still friends. Carry on. Maybe. We are. Gabriela Santos with us here. How do you link in the different tranches of credit? I mean, everybody can dash to full faith in credit. We know the two-year yield of four digits, 1.4227 and 139 print. But how do you take out credit and particularly the EM debt to be opportunistic here? So when we think about protection, we absolutely think about things like treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, municipal bonds. And I think it's been an, a very interesting experience to come into the year with yields already so low, but to see that they can go lower during moments of risk aversion. So that protection still works. When we think more about income, though, then we think uh, balancing some of that protection out with things like U.S. high yield, local emerging market debt still makes sense. But we used to be much more positive on those sectors before. 
now we think having a balance between uh, credit and protection makes a lot more sense here. What are the consensus trades heading into the year was emerging markets credit would outperform, in particular local currency uh, credit. Right now we're seeing outflows. Finally, actually, I'm surprised it took this long from ETFs that track uh, emerging markets credit. And you're seeing emerging market currencies fall to their weakest since December. At what point do you just concede that perhaps this isn't as good of a trade as people expected it to be? So the thesis for that we share for ETFs local currency is you still have scope for local central banks to cut interest rates, right? That's not completely done in emerging markets quite yet. So think Brazil, Mexico, uh, a couple in Asia as well. And then with better economic stability also comes stronger EM currency. So that's the thesis. That's coming into question um, at this point, given some of this risk aversion around the coronavirus. But I don't know that we can completely postpone that story for the second, third, fourth quarter, right? It's a similar story to what we were discussing with the equity market. It's a blip. It doesn't change the ultimate destination. You know, a story we come back to again and again, a theme on this program that we revisit often. We're always focused on the shark closest to the boat and not the storm clouds gathering on the horizon. And I just wonder, once we get past this, how focused we will be on Bernie Sanders surging up in the polls. And I just wonder how many questions you've had on that in the last week or so, Gabby. We have a lot of questions on the election, certainly from our clients around the world and in the US as well. And we have seen the impact of Bernie Sanders moving higher in the polls on Friday and yesterday. We did see a bit of a hit in the healthcare sector. So it's not being completely ignored. Um, ultimately, we think the field is still very divided on the Democratic side, and it might take us up all the way to the July Democratic Convention until we actually know who the Democratic candidate is. So that could be a source of volatility here for the second quarter, for the middle of the year, once we get past the coronavirus and we start getting a bigger focus on who the Democratic candidate could be. Yeah, I'm looking year to date, and essentially we've given up the gains. SPX is up less than 1% uh, year to date as well. It's almost with this horrific uh, illness in China, we're going to need to recalibrate once we get past the initial shock and the growth rates of uh, those ill as well. When you recalibrate, what do you look at? Do you recalibrate bonds? Do you recalibrate central bank policy? Do you recalibrate equities? How do you do that? So it's, it's interesting that it's interesting that we have had this correction but we came into the year with PE multiples at 18 and a half times in the US. It was really priced quite fully, shall we say. So anything that shook the boat that didn't exactly confirm the consensus was bound to cause some sort of uh, pullback or correction in the market. So for for now, we're, we're really uh, st sticking to our story here yeah. that it should be a positive year for stocks uh, and for credit but with a pocket of volatility yeah. here. Gabriela Santos, greatly appreciated. Thank you uh, so much. Why have you been wandering away to do a photo shoot? <laughs> oh, doing a photo shoot here. You know, they just turn the bright lights wondering. on here. We have a wonderful, for know, those who don't know. know, know he's, he's trying to wind me up. <laughs> it's, like, it's like John Day. Gabriela's you know. looking at you. Why is it, what, what is, is going what is, what on? Is I'm totally insane. distracted I mean, at the end. Like, honestly, the fact Day? that you kept, you're cool. Very cool. Gabriela Santos with us from JP Morgan. Thank you very much, Gabby. Good to see you. Let's bring in Walter Pisek with Lightshed because, John, I would suggest it's not just about Apple, but it's about 5G, what you and I heard in Davos on 5G and all the time. You know, broader, a bigger conversation. The upgrade cycle Pisek. for later this year. He probably doesn't deserve a conversation this large, but let's give it to him right now. Walter, 
Good morning. What's your target on Apple? Tom, first of all, I definitely deserve a, a, top, a discussion. An hour or two. Yes, an hour or uh, two. But since we have launched LightShed, uh, we have not come out with our new valuation um, on Apple as of yet. We're definitely looking at some of the value drivers of the service business. Um, but clearly, the valuation of Apple is in a new realm now, right? I mean, the, the PE multiple in this thing is at a premium. And how many times have we come on and, and talked about the fact that this thing still traded at a discount to the market multiple? Now you've got a very healthy premium to the market multiple in terms of the valuation and where it's gone in the last year. What was the question we keep coming back to? You and I have discussed this so many times, the appropriate multiple for this company. What is it? I mean, it's, a, lot of these, a lot of the times you look at this and say, what is the historical norm? And now we're into what's the right one. And John, what, again, what you and I have talked about before is if you establish that this is a recurring revenue business, and now people are getting excited about the services side of the business, the Apple TVs, the iClouds, the subscription things, as why it's taking the multiple. But really, in the past, you could have made the same argument about the iPhone business. If you have an iPhone, the customer retention on that is so high that you're coming back to Apple whenever you're ready to upgrade your phone. Now, those upgrades were lengthening and happening slower than anticipated, but it really was already a recurring revenue business in, in many ways. So I think the market is now catching up to the reality of this being a recurring revenue business. And John, like recurring revenue businesses do get premium valuations to wherever the market multiple is. I will say uh, that the AirPod business is getting recurring uh, income from the Keen household. We hear about it every that, time well, we discuss two pair Apple. lost and Basically. The, the damn dog lost his Do we need, we need subscriptions to Apple? Pods yes, because seriously. everyone keeps losing them. It, it, Not well, everyone. What Just in, in God's his name is a racket called AirPods? <laughs> All right. Apple uh, market capitalization right now is uh, $1.35 trillion. Dan, Wed uh, Dan Ives over at Wedbush expects that Apple will be the first $2 trillion valuation company by the end of 2021. Do you agree? Well, I think he also has mentioned a 5G super cycle as part of that call or as, as one of the potentials. And I really don't agree with that. I mean, 5G, and, and we cover the operators. We know that the networks, where they are today, the spectrum that they're using, and where the networks will be when this new iPhone launches. So to, so to believe that this is somehow going to drive 15 or 20% unit growth, I think is a really difficult reach. And I think that could be a risk in this stock going forward. I'm not sure the consensus view is the same um, as what he's looking at in terms of this company. I mean, if you look at consensus revenue growth, it exits the year at 6 or 7%. 6 or 7% implies for the iPhone business like 2%. I wouldn't say 2% top-line revenue growth is super cycle. So while there are some analysts that may be pitching very high valuations based on, on a hope for a super cycle, the reality is that Apple doesn't really have to have a super cycle to, to deliver upside to the current consensus estimates that are out there. Well, to take me inside the analyst community right now, just lean on your experience. We've had at least 15 firms so far in 2020 raise price targets. As far as you see things, be as critical as you like, is there, that the analyst community marking to market here, or are they all coming around to this big idea that something's changed and they missed it? Uh, John, you hit it on the head. It's mark to market. And actually, this is, if you think about it, if you're an Apple shareholder, you're a little relieved that what analysts are effectively doing is just jacking the multiple. There are phases that analysts go through where they're saying, okay, I want to have the highest target out there, or I want to move this 
to a new level so I can maintain my buy rating because they're getting calls from their compliance department saying, like, okay, the stock has moved past your price target. You need to either downgrade the stock or move it to 15 or 20 percent higher than the current level. So they're just moving the multiples. What can happen sometimes, though, is analysts start to jack their estimates up and take their revenue up in order to get higher estimates to drive a higher multiple. I haven't quite seen that yet. To me, if those types of things happen and people, again, start pitching super cycle and, and putting out expectations of 15 or 20% revenue growth, then that's probably an opportunity to take profits off the table and look even on the short side on this. But right now, the consensus number has not moved up dramatically. So those estimate revisions, to your point, are basically just jacking the multiple up as opposed to um, moving it up based on higher earnings estimates. And John, also embedded in your question was a really interesting point. What has changed? And back a year ago, people were still worried about slowing growth in China for Apple. And this comes even at a time of the coronavirus and potential disruptions to the economy further in that region. Why is that not a concern now for Apple's outlook? It's certainly a concern, but I mean, this thing is happening real time, right? This is a day-by-day change. Yesterday, we're, we're, you know, we're talking about a, one or two of the plants that are within the province that's impacted. I mean, who knows what the spread of that's going to be tomorrow or, or the day after that. So I think it is, you know, something, but it's happened very recently. So if this continues to spread, this is certainly going to be a question on tonight's earnings call as far as, you know, what yeah. have you moved already? How quickly can you move? And if and look, Tim Cook, this is his expertise. He should know how to do this, but it's certainly going to be an overhang on the stock in the near term. Well, to Tom and me just have one question just to wrap it up. Do you have a TV and light shed for Liverpool or have you just decided not to watch anymore because the season's over and you've won the league? Now that we have two large screen televisions, we can watch two games at once. And when they're running simultaneous Premier League games in the afternoon, we got them, we got it covered Was on I... two different games. And Liverpool will always get the primary spot despite really? um, yeah. being so far ahead. Yeah. Was I rude to ask the Dutch Prime Minister about Virgil Van Dyke? Pharaoh thought it was a folks pot, but you know no, that's I okay. it was totally a folks fine. Pa? I found it quite a folks quite pass. Funny. A, folks... a folks pass. Come on, a what folks pass. I'm happy you did that. What would be happy you did that? Honestly, I just want to say, you said, you know, for Tom and John, my question. But I will say, how do you know I'm not following Liverpool? You've made it very clear over the last few months that you, you hate this discussion. I, Are you I think Michael Barr is here we, with some we, news. Have we got clearance that you like it now? Uh, no, not quite yet. Well, we'll continue. Walter Prysak, thank you so much. We look Walter, forward to you. seeing you raise your Apple target at $200 at some point. <laughs> focus on Sunday on an absolute tragedy. The death of Kobe Bryant, shaking the sporting world, jolting the whole world from a helicopter crash in California. The world reflecting on how to mark his passing. His beloved AC Milan will play Torino uh, later this evening in Italy. I understand that AC Milan will be wearing black armbands and observing Mm -hmm. a minute's silence as well, Tom. And I think that's something the basketball world has got to deal with as well, how to reflect on his legacy and how to mark it in the years to come. Joining us, I'm pleased to say, is Stephen Paliuka, Bain Capital co-chairman and Boston Celtics co-owner. Steve, you and I were talking about the legends of basketball with Tom Keane just last week. No one expected this, Stephen. Your thoughts, please, your reaction. Well, a real tragedy. Um, I got to know Kobe a little bit. uh, We played them in in the 2008 finals. 
and uh, he was incredible but lost, but he was really classy uh, when they lost. And right after that, we went to the Olympics uh, in August, and, and I had several breakfasts with him, and he was incredibly gracious. Uh, he later uh, returned to the garden and actually played his last game here in the garden. We gave him a plaque and a piece of the parquet, and he was a great champion, and he, he uh, really believed in the NBA history, the NBA uh, charismatic and did lots of things for lots of great people. So he's, uh, he's going to be missed. It's just it's shocking. It seems surreal. His daughter Gigi cut him in the game. He made very clear he wanted to walk away, and there she was keeping the game. Steve, explain to our global audience the magic of June 12, 1984. Lakers, Celtics, and it was a reaffirmation of what's been a, a, a hugely wonderful rivalry within all of sports. It was kindled in Game 7 in 1984. And explain how that's moved on and how Mr. Bryant helped drive forward this ancient rivalry. Well, the rivalry got reunited back in, the, in, in, in 2000, you know, 7-2008 with the Kevin Garnett Celtics team. But uh, many of us had been to all those games uh, in 84 and 86 uh, with Larry Bird against Magic Johnson, and now it was Kobe against Paul Pierce. And Paul Pierce, uh, ironically enough, was an L.A. legend as well. And uh, and they really went at it in that finals. And Paul Pierce uh, ended up uh, finally getting a championship, which was well-deserved. But again, Kobe was extremely gracious in defeat. And I remember uh, at the Olympics in 2008, Coach K told me that the interesting thing about Kobe was that of all the guys on the team, he was actually the hardest worker. He was a superstar, but he was the hardest worker. And that set the tone for the for the American team. He would go to practice uh, for the Olympics and then spend another hour himself with a trainer running up and down and shooting. And that's an incredible example. Already a superstar and still working hard, respecting the game and being a great leader. Uh, so it, 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 the Celtics rivalry will live on. You will remember Kobe. And uh, I'll always remember that last game he played in the Garden and, and, and the excitement uh, that he brought. It's, uh, it's just a pity with all those people who died in that tragic accident. Steve, the work ethic that you mentioned, I think everyone's got their own story or have heard stories about Kobe Bryant's work ethic. And that's really how he transcended beyond just basketball and motivated people that had never met him. Stephen, we started this conversation about how to mark his legacy, what the NBA should do. Any thoughts on that at the moment, Steve? Well, I, I think Adam Silver, uh, as you know, has been an incredible commissioner, and he's working on on, on that. And uh, uh, I know for, deeply from all the owners in the NBA, you know, the deep loss that we'll feel for Kobe. So, so I think Adam is working on that right now, and uh, there'll be there'll be tributes and and an appropriate uh, handling of, of that. Of this great legend that we're going to miss every day. I, I still, again, it's hard to it's hard to believe that he's gone. Steve Pellier, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate you, your attendance here after speaking to you in Davos as well. Uh, a gentleman on the parquet floor in Boston. Let's turn to some commentary from Mohammed Al-Aryan now, Allianz Chief Economic Advisor and Bloomberg Opinion Columnist who writes the following. Because it's too early to know about the financial contagion of the coronavirus, it is too early to say whether and when this combination of buy the dip and fear of missing out tendencies will prevail. And this is not the only uncertainty in play. Pleased to say that giving us some of his precious time in transit, I understand, Mohammed Al-Aryan joins us now. Mohammed, it's great to have you with us. Just explore those thoughts further. Just a little bit more, please. Yeah, I mean, for the last few years, there's been a tug of war. On the one hand, very positive market technicals. 
people feeling that every dip was a buying opportunity. The fear of missing out the FOMO was very strong. On the other hand, fundamentals have been weakening. What we have now is increasingly a sudden stop to the second largest economy in the world. And we're going to test the resilience of the market technical as we go forward. Already you hear a lot of commentary saying this is a transitory shock. It's reversible by now. But, you know, this one is more uncertain than what we've seen in the past. Mohammed, I got up in front of me an acclaimed debt piece that no doubt one of the institutions you managed for years would own, which is the Apple computer piece out 10 years now, paying 0.75% in Swiss franc, yielding a negative statistic. And just this year, it's up 12% from 100 to 112. Uh, it's a peak before the virus. This is the most odd, messed up, set of valuations we have what's a mortal person to do a mere normal person to do given the oddities you perceive every day the person should understand that we are living in an exceptional era of massive central bank liquidity intersection what the fed has done alone since september is absolutely remarkable in terms of how much it has expanded yeah And that has rippled through the financial markets. So we have been riding this wonderful liquidity wave that results in three things. I call it, you know, the the dream team for investors. One is high returns. Two is no volatility. And three is you make money even on your risk mitigating strategy. You even make money on government bonds and high quality bonds like you just cited. So this is an exceptional period. And the question has always been, how long would it last? Well, Mohammed, it seems to have lasted a very long time, and central banks have made it clear that they are willing to support this in, uh, with the addition of, of stimulus, whether it's expanding the balance sheet or cutting rates. So why not buy the dip? Because it's not an issue of willingness, Lisa. The willingness of central banks to continue on this path, I think, is very clear. It's an ability question. So look at the ECB. Depending on, on how you feel, the ECB is somewhere between being ineffective to being counterproductive. And even within the ECB, there's talk about collateral damage of negative interest rates. So we are getting to the, towards the end of this remarkable period. But I agree, it is very difficult to call um, the end. That's why I've been saying over and over again, keep a claim on the upside, but increasingly do so in a defensive manner. That's been my strategy for the last six months. Mohammed, let's talk about the economics of this. You mentioned something quite important that we shouldn't disregard. A sudden stop in the world's second largest economy. And it certainly seems that way for several of the biggest cities in China at the moment. I'm wondering how that spills over to the rest of the world. At the moment, I, I believe the consensus, if I could get my hands around the consensus right now, might sound a little something like, we'll get through this in a month or so, we'll bounce back. You've been making the point for a long time that in places like Europe, we're at stall speed, and it wouldn't take much to shake a vulnerable recovery and see cracks in it pretty quickly. Is that something you're concerned about at the moment? Yes, John. My two flashing yellow lights are China and Europe. China is an emerging economy subject to increasingly sudden stop dynamics, as I mentioned. Now, those of us who have lived in emerging markets Um, investing, know what a sudden stop looks like. Um, It accelerates, it cascades, 
it brings things to um, a halt, and then you expose all sorts of fragilities. And one of the fragilities here is China's historic development process. It is navigating the middle income transition, and this makes the probability of the middle income trap much higher. Then go to Europe, where the hope was that it would get some transformation of its cyclical bounds into something more secular and structural. That's not happening. Policy is not stepping up. Right. And global headwinds are getting stronger. So, so I worry about these two areas. I worry less about the U.S., but China right. and Europe, yes. And now John Farrell and I continue our discussion in Davos. We do this with Mohammed El Arian of Allianz and, of course, writing for Bloomberg Opinion. I don't know if you caught up with it, Dr. Larian. I know you're fixated on the Super Bowl, 49ers and Chiefs. But Mr. Prince of Bridgewater decided boom bust is over. We had a huge response, huge response saying wrong. But let's walk through the theory. Boom bust is a cycle. The cycle is not as efficient because we've come down to the lower bound, lower interest rates. And maybe that's generated less of a boom bust and more weighted towards a leaden economy forward. Have we abandoned the traditional business cycle? No. If the boom bust was only a function of central bank actions, then Mr. Prince would have an important point. But a boom bust is also a function of private sector behavior. Um, think of Minsky. What does a period of calm do? It encourages people to take risk, to take too much risk. And part of the boom bust comes from private sector behavior. So I buy the notion that we're not going to get massive central bank hikes in interest rates, but I do not buy the notion that the private sector has, a, has an inherent great moderation. The private sector, as far as I can see, is still subject to boom-bust financial cycles. What's so important here, folks, and I'm not going to get into the geometry right now. Geometry on radio lease is tough. But, Mohammed, if we drop any kind of function down towards a given Paul Krugman zero bound or even go to negative rates, there's a presumption of recovery. Do you presume a, cover, a recovery of stability over the next two or five or even 10 years? Or are we setting ourselves up for massive instabilities? So it depends on the policy reaction function. If we are going to continue to rely on central banks, then think of the image of pushing on a string. We cannot rely on central banks to keep the whole game going. If we can see the pivot to a more comprehensive pro-growth policies, yes, I can see a rebound. That's why I increasingly think that we can get, be coming to the neck of this T-junction, where the path we're on becomes totally unsustainable, and there's a decision to be made, and where we end up will be mainly a function of the policy response. Mohammed, you were saying about the Minsky moment, that typically during these periods of low volatility and central bank stimulus, there's a buildup in risk that can be truly catastrophic, at least from a market's perspective. Are you seeing that in any place in markets now? So it's important, Lisa, to distinguish between the Minsky moment, which is when you get a sudden financial stop, and the Minsky instability hypothesis, which suggests that, you, that the private sector takes too much risk um, it's important to make that mm. distinction. I was talking right. about the Minsky instability hypothesis, and yes, I see it. I see it in the issuance by high-yield yeah. companies. I see it in where spreads are. I see it in the thinking only in terms of relative yield. Very few people yeah. talk about absolute yield. Mohammed, 
Section 118 behind the San Francisco 49ers. Has Bill called you up at $19,125 a ticket? He has not. Um, but I must say that I am supporting the 49ers. It, it goes back to the days of Montana um, yeah. and Steve Young. They just captured my heart then. So as much as I respect the Chiefs and especially their coach, I will be well. slightly inclined in favor of the 49ers. Is that Mo- how much a ticket is? Yeah. $20,000? Yeah, 20000 for fancy serious? seats. Yeah. Mohamed Alarian, thank you so much. Mohammed, greatly, thank you. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Right now, Andrew Hollenhorst will save us. He's with Citigroup, and what's charming about him, not only the PhD from US, UCLA in uh, economics, but also serious fixed income uh, effort. Andrew, I'm putting out on Twitter and LinkedIn right now the log two-year yield, and we're at a key junction right now for the two-year yield. It's sort of where it's been through late 2019. If the two-year yield breaks down to where it was early 2017, what does that signal to Chairman Powell? Yeah, isn't this interesting? And in a way, it's so much like 2019 again, two-year yields that are already below 150 basis points, and that's the bottom of the Fed's policy range. So if you're the Fed looking at this, you're seeing that you know very, very front-end inversion I don't think we're there yet, but this is the kind of scenario where you start to get the questions. You're pricing Fed cuts. Doesn't it become hard for the Fed not to cut? So I don't think we're there on that narrative yet, but we're getting there. Andrew, I was struck by yesterday. We saw definitely a risk-off feel, a flight to quality, bonds rallying, yield curve flattening, and flattening the most since August by a couple of measures. How concerning is this, the suggestion being that the Fed may cut rates in response to some sort of exogenous threat or anything, but it's not going to stimulate growth in the longer term? Yeah, so I think that's, again, that's a lot of what we were looking at in 2019. And that is really a reflection of where we are with the global economy and the U.S. economy right now when you're operating at a decent but pretty low level of trend growth. So we think we're growing around 2% in the U.S. If you have any kind of downside shock to that, then you're looking at a pretty low growth rate, maybe even a recession. Um, And that's why I think that the Fed's been quite clever in kind of saying, well, if there's a material reassessment, we can always provide more accommodation. And that's why the market keeps pricing that. So in a sense, the, the market is kind of putting that Fed accommodation back into yields, and that's why you see the yield curve inverting. Um, but it is, it's a, it's a sign of that kind of moderation in global growth. Andrew, I'm struck also when you say Fed accommodation, more of it. Is it rate cuts, or we're seeing this balance sheet expansion that is at the fastest pace uh, since the early 2010s? Is that going to continue? Yeah, great question. And we've had this back and forth in markets. And Tom and I have had this back and forth. Is it QE? Is it not QE? And Fed officials have been pretty adamant that this downsheet expansion is not QE. And I think there's a good economic argument for that. But I think we're also all aware that many in the market are seeing this balance sheet expansion as something that's supporting markets. So the Fed has some time here. I think they can take their time. They don't need to ratchet down the pace of purchases, um, probably at least until Q2, could push that out even further. And to the extent we get concerned about downside risk, that would be a reason to maybe push it out a bit. What's your run rate on GDP? 12 months forward, what's your real GDP call? Exactly 2%. So going from an economy that's slightly above 2% to down to 2%. Citigroup is at 2.0%. That's right. Wow. 
Do you see, this came up in Davos meeting after meeting, do you see any history that a central bank can overtly reflate an economy? You know, we have not seen this kind of major reflation. I think we get excited about it at the beginning of most years for the past few years. It was interesting hearing the, converse, the comments coming out of Davos and a lot of positive sentiment. Um, very hard to engineer that kind of reflation, especially where we are now. Andrew, we are looking at a coronavirus spreading, and a lot of people are trying to figure out the potential ramifications to the global economy as well as to the United States. Can you just map out just a, a rough sort of ballpark of the potential impact here or lack thereof that could potentially uh, affect people's views on or where they go asset-wise? There's just so much uncertainty right now, and I think that's really what markets are pricing. That's why you're seeing this kind of generalized risk-off, flight into treasuries, flight into U.S. dollar, exactly what you would expect. I think we already know there's going to be an economic impact in China. We know that travel has been curtailed during the important Lunar New Year period. So that's definitely going to impact China GDP. Um, not clear that there's any direct impact on U.S. GDP. But remember, we were all looking at the global oh. PMI. Those were turning up. China PMI was turning up. So if that global story gets called into question, yeah. then you start to worry a little bit more about the U.S. by extension. Andrew, thank you so much. Andrew Hollanders, he's with uh, Citigroup as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.